Hello, and welcome back to Playability, where we hold conversations at the crossroads of gameplay and accessibility. I'm your host, Lauren Woolsey, and I'm here today with Dustin Schwartz to talk about his role as a rulebook editor and game producer through the Rules Forge. Welcome, Dustin. Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate you having me on. So can you give our listeners a bit of a rundown in what you do for the community and the different services you provide for rulebook editing? Certainly. I tend to work on all facets of a rulebook, really. Rulebook editor is the term that most commonly gets used, and so I, I tend to use that because people understand that. But I do a lot of rulebook writing and rewriting. That's probably more what I do than, <laughs> than strictly editing. And usually I, I'm involved in some capacity with whoever's doing the layout, graphic design, because that all ties together. So I like to kind of consider it a team effort with the writer, the editor, the graphic designer, all coming together to try to make that rulebook the best teaching tool it can be. Perfect. What got you into that role? How did you find yourself in that position over time? It was a couple years into me being interested in hobby board games. It wasn't that I necessarily was reading rule books and thinking, oh, these are terrible. It simply <laughs> got involved with the tabletop community on Twitter, I think. And as a matter of fact, that's how I met you. Yep. And, you know, there's there's great people there. And I think one time I saw like a kind of community call for help, almost like a crowdsourced quick edit of a rule book before it went to print. And I had some extra time that day. So I hopped on, gave some thoughts. And the the designer who had asked me to do that said that he thought my feedback was great. And so I thought maybe I could do this some more. And long story short, it went from there. And here I am 150 rule books later, um, <laughs> doing this full time. Perfect. So before we get into more examples of what you've done, I think we should just go ahead and ask the question we ask all of our guests. What does accessibility mean to you? Accessibility, um, particularly with what I'm doing professionally with rule books, I think of accessibility in terms of really interrogating and questioning the assumptions that we are making about the person playing the game. And a lot of that comes down to if we're trying to make the rule set understandable, you got to think, what are we asking this reader to understand about games that's sort of implicit in the language? And how do we not introduce artificial barriers with how we teach the game or present the game visually or all those sorts of things? You know, if we can make it more accessible to more people, then let's do that. And a lot of that, I know you guys have done episodes relating to, you know, colorblind friendliness and, you know, more the visual side, which I sometimes offer commentary on that if I'm working with a publisher, but generally that's not my lane. And my lane is more, how do we make the rules more accessible? Right. How do we teach that in a way that, you know, people aren't left scratching their heads unnecessarily? So I think, you know, in, in terms of what I think about daily when it comes to that, that's more the angle. Yeah, that's excellent. What you noted about our previous episodes, a lot of game designers, when their first thought is when we ask about accessibility is colorblindness because it's easy to recognize. It's easy to see when a game does it poorly and it's easy to see when a game does it well. And I think not enough people realize that the rules are probably more important in a lot of ways to making a game accessible. I really liked your phrase, interrogating our assumptions, because that's something that I think a lot of people don't recognize is just this kind of background bias that we have from living in the culture that we do. And you kind of have to actively fight that. Yeah. And, you know, you can't always take it back to ground zero. And that's where you do have to, 
like I say, question it and make sure that you're making intentional decisions with what you're doing. Think, for example, of, you know, maybe a very complex Stefan Feld game coming out as the publisher or people working with the publisher. You have to understand that this game has a specific audience that is probably not the same audience for a game like Seven Wonders or, you know, games that are much more accessible. And so maybe you have to make certain assumptions about uh, the knowledge that your player base has. But as often as possible, we try not to do that. But, you know, occasionally in a game, for instance, if it's a game targeted at kind of alpha level consumers, a big $80 game that has all mechanisms stacked upon mechanisms, you probably don't go out of your way to explain what a hand of cards is. Certainly, right? yeah. But maybe in a title that is more geared at mainstream accessibility, something that's going to show up on Barnes and Noble shelves or Target shelves, maybe you do throw a little bit more effort at that so that you know, you're not leaving people who haven't played anything but traditional card games and might wonder about that. You give them a little bit more to hang their hat on. So you mentioned defining jargon that comes up. What would you say are some of the biggest improvements that can be made to rule books on like the first pass with accessibility in mind? So some of the simplest changes that can be made across the board. Yeah, that's great. I, and this is something that I that I tend to do when a, a rulebook first comes across my desk, so to speak, is you kind of identify those quick and easy fixes that can be done. And if you have time or, you know, the publisher has more resources to commit to more granular changes, then then certainly we go for that. But some of the big ones, the big hills that we tend to shave off, one of them has to do with simply making sure that you're using consistent terminology. And it's maybe harder to do this than you think, just because if a designer is writing a rule book and that's who tends to do the first pass, the stuff that arrives <laughs> on my desk, you know, maybe in the in the course of iterating their game, they've used five different terms for the same thing. And sure, and it all makes sense to them. All makes sense to them. And, and most of it's only existed in their head. And so you get five different slight variations on the same keyword. And of course, that's not ideal. So if we can pull it back to a, a single keyword that means all these things and we never vary from that, there's no need for synonyms when you're doing technical stuff like that. So that that's a big one. You should try to hit that one really early on. Another one, and this is sort of kind of straying into like a, a visual design lane. And it's not that I make prescriptions about the visual design, but I tend to ask a lot of questions about what the game does physically on the table. Because if you get someone who's explaining the game to you in person or via a video tutorial, they can do a lot of things. There's a lot of affordances with visuals that you can't get necessarily from a text document. You can be right. pointing to an area of the board and saying, these cards go here or place your token here. And that lets you take this tile from over here. And I want to know those things as I'm working on the rules, because one of the things I find usually most lacking in kind of like alpha level prototype rule books is that they don't do a great job of explaining that. And that's usually because designers don't put too much thought into it at that time, because they understand a lot of those decisions will ultimately change or be finalized at the publisher level. But, you know, knowing where stuff happens on the tabletop, you don't have the designer who can pop out of the, you know, the box and teach you the game. <laughs> And not everybody is going to be the type of person to subscribe to tutorial channels on YouTube or, or even want to look them up if they're sitting down to learn the game at their table. The rulebook should do the best job it can. And so that's usually what it's I ask. the first line of defense. Oh, it sure is. And so I ask a lot of questions to the publisher and the designer, 
making sure that I understand, because if I don't understand, as someone who's read countless rule books, if I don't quite <laughs> understand how these elements of the tabletop are supposed to work together, how it all, you know, how the, the physical experience of the rules manifests on the tabletop, then the reader probably won't either. And that's another area where we can do a lot of major improvements on kind of a first pass. Mm -hmm. And then for the other side of things that we focused on at playability inclusion, what are some of the things that you've seen become part of the bigger conversation with rulebook editing that have to do with making wording more inclusive? Oh, yeah. There's definitely things that can be done there. I've been a proponent of using singular they for a long time. I think Excellent. probably the first handful of rule books that I did, that was kind of before I was aware of that conversation. So we did use gendered pronouns. And then once I kind of saw that there isn't a need for that, and I realized uh, the funny story is that I think I came to singular they simply from from a different angle. I came to it from the angle of it's language that we use every day. And I think people who get up in arms about not using singular they, they don't realize that we use singular they every day in conversation. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, we're, we're so used to following the prescribed rules of grammar and those sorts of things. And we don't realize that oftentimes our everyday speech varies from those rules and we get along just fine. So maybe the rules don't need to be there. So I came to Singular Day from there. And then when I realized the benefits that it affords in terms of inclusiveness, making large proportion of your audience feel like they can see themselves reflected, then of course, there's no reason not to use it. So I've been using that for a long time now. In terms of text, which is usually what I work with, one of the other areas that I've tried to do my small little part, I suppose, to you know help players see themselves reflected in a game is when examples crop up in a rule book, which happens a lot. Oh, yeah. Oftentimes, you just get run-of-the-mill names that sound like your average white male, I suppose. Like, oh, Henry does this, and then Joe does that, and Bob. And, <laughs> you know, of course, they're just hypotheticals, so... That has made sense for a long time. But then I realized, well, if they're just hypotheticals, why couldn't we use names that might reflect a more diverse audience as well? So I started doing that. And that's kind of a fun thing, too. Usually, if I'm working on a rule book, I'll throw it out to Twitter and say, hey, give me four names that sound like a diverse cast of characters just sat down to the table and are playing a game together. And um, so that's kind of a, a fun way that I crowdsource that element. What's your favorite part of the rule book process? Favorite part? Yeah, I think it's making sure that the book itself has a, a strong outline. That's my favorite part, because oftentimes when I come to a rule book for the first time, it doesn't have a strong outline. And it's the major challenge in understanding the game and what the game is trying to do. You got to get past the barrier of understanding how all these separate rules that are just, you know, conglomerated into a document, where they all are supposed to hang on the skeleton of this rule book. Mm -hmm. So making sure that I always get a, a strong sense of satisfaction once I've finished with the kind of the big first pass and have the outline in a shape that makes sense to me and, you know, have run it past a couple of people to make sure it makes sense to them too. And there's there's a strong sense of accomplishment when, when I feel like, okay, all these disparate rules, and oftentimes there's a lot of them, they're all where they're supposed to be <laughs> in a way that makes sense. So that's one of my favorite parts. Nice. Have you ever, in conversations back and forth with the game designer, in the sort of questions that you ask to make sure that you understand the game, have you ever come across where when you ask about, you know, why is this rule here or where does it fit in, just because you want to put it in the right spot, that a designer realizes that maybe that rule doesn't make sense or shouldn't be there? 
Yes, that's a great question. And I, I enjoy doing that too. Maybe that's a dark horse <laughs> candidate for one of my favorite things, kind of doing accidental game development right. while working on the rules, because you're right. Sometimes from an editor's angle, you see, okay, you see a common thread about all of these rules. And then here's this edge case that doesn't as written make sense. So sometimes I'll ask the designer, hey, is, is this really the intended effect? Because it runs counter to all the others. And, you know, player assumption is going to be driven by those other ones. So they're probably going to misinterpret or misunderstand this effect or this card. And oftentimes there's like a, oh, yeah, you're right moment from the designer. Well, we can just scratch that or maybe... You know, sometimes they'll ask me, how would we word that in a way that better makes sense, even if it's involves changing the effect slightly right. to make it more in line with, you know, what player expectations are going to be based on the rest of the rules. Yeah. I mean, if players are going to get a rule wrong consistently, then maybe that rule shouldn't really be how it was. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> For listeners who are interested in your services down the line, where can they find you on social media? Sure. I tend to spend a lot of time on Twitter. I love the board game community, both design publishers and just consumers like myself who are on Twitter talking about games. And over there, I'm at Dustin B. Schwartz. My middle initial is B for Brian. So <laughs> Dustin B. Schwartz at Twitter. And I almost tend to spend a lot of time on Facebook. My website is rulesforge.com. And that's got, I suppose, more technical details about what I do and, and rates and that sort of thing. Perfect. Yeah, we'll make sure to have that information in the section on our website. Great. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It was really enlightening. No, I appreciate you having me on. I love talking about these sorts of topics. And my local game group, they get an earful all the time uh, <laughs> just because just I like to talk about it. So it's fun to talk to others who also are, you know, have interests and, and passions in that direction like the, you folks over at uh, Playability. Yeah. Well, thanks again and have an excellent afternoon. All right, will do. For more information about the topics that we discussed in this episode and the links that we just mentioned, we'll have those in the About This Episode section on our website at playabilitypod.com. And if our listeners have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, please email us at playabilitypod at gmail.com and find us on major social media platforms as at playabilitypod. Thanks again for listening. Play with a new perspective.